Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good evening. Welcome to today's program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Patty James, co-chair with Dr. William Grant of the Nutrition, Food, and Wellness Member-Led Forum and chair of this program. It is now my pleasure to introduce Dr. Nicole Avina and Dr. Robert Lustig. Dr. Nicole Avina is an associate professor of neuroscience at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City and a visiting professor of health psychology at Princeton University. She is a research neuroscientist and expert in the fields of nutrition, diet, and addiction, with a special focus on nutrition during early life and pregnancy and women's health. She has done groundbreaking work developing models to characterize food addiction and the dangers of excess sugar intake. Her research achievements have been honored by awards from several groups, including the New York Academy of Sciences, the American Psychological Association, and the National Institutes on drug abuse. In addition to over 100 peer-reviewed scholarly publications, Dr. Avina has written several popular books, including Sugarless, which will be discussed today. Robert H. Lustig, MD, MSL, is an emeritus professor of pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology and a member of the Institute for Health Policy Studies at UCSF. Dr. Lustig is a neuroendocrinologist with expertise in metabolism, obesity, and nutrition. He is one of the leaders of the current anti-sugar movement that is changing the food industry. He has dedicated his retirement from clinical medicine to help fix the food supply any way he can to reduce human suffering and salvage the environment. Dr. Lustig graduated from MIT in 1976 and received his MD from Cornell University Medical College in 1980. He also received his Master's of Studies in Law degree from the University of California Hastings College of Law in 2013. He's the author of many popular books, including Metabolical, The Lure and Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine, which is available today. He is Chief Science Officer of the nonprofit Eat Real on the advisory boards of UC Davis Innovation Institute for Food and Health, the Center for Humane Technology, Simplex Health, Levels Health, and Readout Health, and is the Chief Medical Officer of Biolumen Technologies, Fugel, Perfact, and Kalen Health. So Dr. Lustig is going to explain the history of sugar about 100 years back. What was the average consumption and what type of sugar was it? Cane, honey, molasses, etc. How many types of sugar are there today? So he will tell us everything we need to know to bring us up to speed on that, on sugar. And from there, Dr. Lustig will discuss toxicity of sugar, and Dr. Avina will discuss addiction. Thank, thank you, Patty. Um, and I have to tell you that, first of all, uh, Thanks to the Commonwealth Club for recognizing this as a issue that needs to be brought to the fore. And nothing gives me greater delight than sharing the stage with Nicole. Um, We have been, um, shall we say, uh, 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 colleagues, friends, uh, um, uh, and uh, panelists uh, now for uh, over 15 years. And uh, we're going to be doing the dog and pony show. Not just here, but in New York in two weeks and then in London in a couple of months, too. So this is a hot topic and, and I can't think of anybody better. And I and Nicole is the founder of this issue of sugar addiction. So you are hearing it from the source tonight. All right. Sugar. First of all, let's define it. What are we talking about? You know, sugar means different things to different people. Like, for instance, Blood sugar. Well, that's blood glucose, not blood sugar. It's blood glucose. And so we have some diabetes educators in the room today. When we talk about dietary sugar, we're talking about something different. We are talking about a compound called sucrose. Glucose and sucrose are not the same. Sucrose, the table sugar, cane sugar, beet sugar, the stuff you put in your coffee, the crystals is a combination of two molecules. One is glucose, and one is this other molecule called fructose. Glucose and fructose together. That makes sucrose, 
It also makes high fructose corn syrup. It also makes honey, maple syrup, and agave. All of those are considered dietary sugar, and that's what we're talking about tonight. And it is not the glucose molecule that's the issue. It's this other molecule, the fructose molecule, because it does weird things, not the glucose. So everybody oriented now? All right. So dietary sugar, dietary sucrose, dietary high fructose corn syrup. That's what we're talking about, the stuff you put in your mouth. A hundred years ago, we consumed about, give or take, 20 grams of sucrose. And over the course of baked goods entering our, uh, you know, standard dietary regimen in the 1920s with the addition of trans fats, which allowed for uh, baked goods to live on the shelf for a much longer period of time, like the 10-year-old Twinkie, we increased our uh, consumption of dietary sucrose all the way up to 54 grams at around 1975. This is daily. And then came this thing called high fructose corn syrup. And that entered our uh, world in around 1975. And then in 1980, Hurricane Allen wiped out the Caribbean sugar crop. And all of the food industry were looking for something homegrown to take its place and cheaper. And so high fructose corn syrup really made its entrance. Everybody remember New Coke from 1985? We revolted against it, and they went back to Coke Classic. Well, I hate to tell you, but you know what you're drinking now is New Coke, and they just rebranded it. That's it. And by the time we hit 2004, we were up to 120 grams of dietary sugar, i.e. sucrose, high fructose corn syrup, per day. So we went from 20 100 years ago to 120. And the question is, what does that do to you? Does that have any effect? Now, the food industry will tell you, well, that just means you changed your calorie source. The question is, is that all it is? Yeah, sucrose has calories. I agree. You know, each molecule, glucose, fructose, if you blow it up in a bomb calorimeter, it's four calories per gram. That's true. And if you blow fat up in a bomb calorimeter, that's nine calories per gram. So they said, well, less energy dense than fat, therefore less obesogenic, slimming. There were a whole bunch of, you know, um, uh, public relations campaigns, TV commercials, basically talking about using sugar to lose weight back in the 1970s. By the way, the company that launched that okay, was sued by the FTC the year after and went out of business, okay, because it was not true. So in the last 20 years, because of the obesity epidemic, our consumption of sugar has cut back from 120 grams per day down to about 94 grams per day. So there has been a decline. And the food industry makes a lot of you know, hay out of that, saying, well, obesity is continuing to go up, but you know, dietary sugars actually come down. It can't be that. Turns out it's much more complicated than that. And we can discuss the mathematical models that have been put in place to explain why that is. I think we can dispel with that for the time being. Bottom line is dietary sugar, that is sucrose, high fructose corn syrup, maple syrup, honey agave, is a problem, okay? And it's a problem because of this fructose molecule. So why is this thing so bad? The toxicity of this molecule. After all, it's in fruit. It should be fine, right? Well, let's talk about it real quick. Fructose does three things that glucose doesn't. Three. Number, and we're going to talk about one of them at great length tonight. First thing it does, it gets turned into fat in the liver really quick. It is a preferred lipogenic substrate. Sugar gets turned into fat. It's a process called de novo lipogenesis, new fat making. Now, when you consume glucose, it goes to all the organs in the body because every cell in any animal can burn glucose for energy. In fact, any cell on the planet can burn glucose for energy. That's how important glucose is. 
Glucose is so important that if you don't consume it, your body makes it. Okay, it can turn an amino acid into glucose. It can turn a fatty acid into glucose. It can turn glycerol into glucose. It has the ability to maintain a glucose level in everyone. The Inuit, they didn't have any place to grow a carbohydrate. They had ice. They had whale blubber. They still had a serum glucose level because glucose is that important. So glucose, not a problem. Fructose, different problem. So number one, increases the uh, liver's uh, 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 turning sugar into fat. And that fat then plugs up the liver and that causes this thing called fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which has now been rebranded to metabolic associated steatic, steatotic liver disease. Who cares? Bottom line is it's fat in your liver. Prior to 1980, if you saw fat in the liver, it was because you were an alcoholic. Okay. But kids don't drink alcohol. And now 25% of children have fatty liver disease. Okay. And not obese children, all children. Where'd that come from? Number two, fructose causes the Maillard reaction, the browning reaction, the caramelization reaction. The reason you paint barbecue sauce on your ribs before you put them on the grill to get that nice brown, flavorful, you know, uh, reaction to occur. Well, hate to tell you, but that's the cause of wrinkles. That's the cause of cataracts. And that's the cause of cardiovascular disease. That is the cause of aging. It is the aging reaction. And the faster it goes, the quicker you die. And fructose does it seven times faster than glucose has to do with the stereochemistry of the molecule. And if I had a, a you know, slide, I could show you why that is. But take my word for it, this, this, that, that fructose molecule is what makes that aging reaction run. And then finally, number three, and the reason we're here tonight, addiction. Because as Nicole will tell you and regale you with all of the science involved, the reward center of the brain the nucleus accumbens does not respond to glucose. The rest of the brain does, but the reward center does not. And in fact, glucose isn't all that interesting. You don't see people going around chugging Cairo syrup, do you? That's glucose. Okay. On the other hand, fructose only activates the reward center of the brain. And anything that activates the reward center of the brain in extreme is addictive. So you can pick your addiction. Cocaine, heroin, nicotine, alcohol, sugar, or you can pick your behavior, shopping, gambling, internet gaming, social media, pornography, anything that activates the nucleus accumbens leads to addiction. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So, Well, that's, wow, that's a, a lot to start with, Rob. <laughs> but I'm really glad that you started off giving the history of the use of sugar, because I think that it's important when we take a look at this whole story that's unfolding with how sugar is infecting our health. History plays a major role in many different ways. So one thing that you touched upon was about how there were some advertisements that early on were promoting sugar as a way to help you lose weight. And one of the parallels that I've noticed and talk about a lot when I teach, and I, you know, I know you speak about this as well, is the parallels between what's happening now with sugar and food and what happened in the past with tobacco. Because we saw those same types of ads. If you go back to the 1940s and the 1950s, I teach a class at Princeton uh, called Health Psychology, and we'd go over all these different conditions that affect our health, and we just finished actually talking about smoking. And when I show my students these old images of, you know, dentists and doctors promoting in advertisements how, oh, smoke lucky strikes, they're good for your... Four throat. out of five doctors smoke camels. Exactly. And so we have these, you know, people who are authority figures who were regaled, you know, as being people who you trust, saying that these are things that you can use to, you know, feel better, help you lose weight. And so we all know what happened with tobacco, right? We fast forward, you know, 50 years from there and we see that things are very, very different. But at the same time, you know, sugar was able to kind of slip in the door a little bit. We started to see the amounts of sugar in our food supply slowly creeping up. Smoking rates were starting to precipitously go down. 
And the same types of tactics were being used. Hey, you wanted to lose weight. You used to smoke cigarettes. Now you want to lose weight. Hey, maybe have a little bit of sugar. And so when we take a look at the history, I think it's really important. So I wanted to share for a few minutes about my history of how I got here and how I got involved with this. And so um, Rob, I can say he's been there since the beginning, the very beginning, because I was a grad student at Princeton. I was doing my PhD in neuroscience and I literally was day one and thinking to myself, what am I doing here? What am I going to do for the next five years? I have to do this major project. And the advisor I was working with at the time, his name is Bart Hobel. He's unfortunately since deceased, but he was a wonderful, wonderful man. Very, very smart. Six foot seven. Yes. Okay. And looked every uh, uh, inch the Ivy uh, uh, leaguer. Very much. Very much so. But a really nice guy. Super nice guy. He always wore a suit and tie. Always. Um, yes. Yes. Very, very lovely gentleman. And um, we were talking about what I might work on for my dissertation. And so I kind of had an open mind. I wanted to learn about the brain and neuroscience. And so we started talking about how obesity rates were going up. And I'll date myself. This was the year 2001. Obesity rates were going up. But at the time, the mantra amongst the public and the media especially was, if you're overweight or obese, it's your fault. It's because you don't have willpower and you got to do something about it. And so the onus was really being put on the individual. And so we started thinking, well, you know what? All of these diet programs, all this advice that's out there, it's pretty simple to follow. Just don't eat a lot of the stuff that's not good for you and eat a lot of the stuff that is good for you. But people still felt that they couldn't control their intake around certain types of foods. And so we started to think, well, maybe it isn't the people. Maybe it's the food. Maybe it's all these processed foods that are coming on the scene that we're seeing basically everywhere we go these days. And that was going back 24 years ago, right? So there was even less of it. But now, I mean, we see it even more so. And so this got us thinking, well, maybe the common denominator amongst a lot of these processed foods is basically that they all have added sugar. And so that's what led us down this path of saying, well, what if sugar is addictive, just like drugs and alcohol could be addictive? And so at the time, and Rob can attest, this was a ridiculous idea. The medical community, the psychiatric community, they did not want to hear that sugar was addictive. It just seemed like this far-fetched idea. Because they were all addicts themselves. (laughs) Let's be honest. And it wasn't until, you know, years later that we were able to start to see some acceptance of this idea. So initially we were in the trenches. We developed an animal model to basically just empirically test whether or not sugar could meet the criteria for being an addictive substance. So what was the criteria? Well, what are the criteria for other addictive substances? We use the American Psychiatric Association's DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. This is the book that the American Psychiatric Association puts out that basically catalogs the criteria for all the different mental health conditions that are out there, including substance use disorder. So we have the criteria that you need to meet in order to be diagnosed as having an addiction to drugs or to alcohol. And so we simply just designed a whole bunch of studies to see, well, could those criteria be met when the drug is sugar? And so that's what set us down this path of doing these experiments and really just trying to establish whether or not it could be an addictive substance. And guess what? It was. And it took us quite some time to get other researchers on board. Rob was certainly an early adopter of this idea of the addiction piece, and I I can distinctly remember that. But there was a lot of pushback initially because people did not want to hear that drugs and alcohol were in the same category as food because it seemed like such a foreign idea because, you know, we hear these things all the time. We need food to survive, right? We have all the, we can go into the, our responses to these comments in the, in a few minutes, but it was really interesting to see how this has unfolded. And I will say that when I look back on my career, I like to feel like I'm maybe mid-career at this point, I hope. Um, I think that it, was interesting to see how initially there was pushback, but now I think we've made a lot of headway and I think a lot of people are on board with this idea. So we've been able to show signs of addiction when the addictive substance is sugar. Rob mentioned the brain. We can see that in the nucleus accumbens, in the limbic system, the reward area of the brain, dopamine is released in response to binging on sugar. 
The problem is that, you know, when we talk about binging on sugar, we think, okay, well, I don't binge on sugar. Well, guess what? If you're eating a candy bar, you're binging on sugar because the amount of sugar that's in that candy bar is a binge size. That is a lot, a large bolus of added sugar. If you're eating Trader Joe's beef with broccoli, you're binging on sugar. Exactly. Our definition of binging is different when we're talking about sugar. It's not the volume of food that you're consuming. It's the amount of sugar that's in that product. And you could have a very small amount of food, but it could still be considered a binge. So we've been able to show binging. We've been able to show these changes in the dopamine system. We've been able to show signs of withdrawal. This one I always think is really interesting because withdrawal is something that people tend to really find to be associated with things like drugs. But the reality is that withdrawal can look different depending on the type of drug that you're addicted to. So for example, certain drugs like cocaine, they don't even have a physiological withdrawal syndrome that emerge. When we look at sugar, I think probably maybe midway through January was when most people, I think, who had their New Year's resolution to give up sugar or to you know stop the processed food started to really feel the effects of the withdrawal. And it can look like having a headache, being irritable and crabby, feeling like, you know, oh, I just don't feel that my, I'm myself, I'm sluggish. And I've had so many people over the years, and you've probably heard this too, say, oh, I cut back on added sugar. And after about a week, I just was so exhausted. I think my blood sugar dropped. So I had some sugar. And I'll say, well, I'm sure your blood sugar is fine. What you're experiencing is the withdrawal. That is your brain compensating for no longer getting this constant stimulation of dopamine from all the sugar that's accustomed to getting all the time from the way you were previously eating. So we've been able to note that. We've been able to note craving. Craving's another one that, again, you know, we have these cravings for foods, which, you know, they can sometimes maybe signal that you're a little low in iron. Maybe if you're craving a hamburger, you know, maybe you need a little bit of something that, you know, you could get from an animal protein. But if you're craving ice cream because you happen to just walk past the ice cream parlor, that's a hedonic craving. That's just craving the pleasure. That's not craving the actual food. And so to make a long story short, it's an evolving story. We are still doing research in this space, but we've been able to demonstrate that the addiction is real and the criteria have been met. And so now the question becomes, what are we going to do about it? Because sugar is in the same category as drugs and alcohol. So there are uh, animal criteria and there are human criteria. Sugar meets the animal criteria hands down and Nicole did the work. Okay. So it's binging, craving, uh, withdrawal, withdrawal and cross sensitization with other drugs of abuse. Meaning you addict uh, an animal to sugar, then you expose them to say amphetamine and they exhibit the addictive response to the amphetamine because they're already addicted because there's only one reward system. And so if you addict somebody to one and you take that away, then they'll be addicted to something else. That's called addiction transfer. So you can demonstrate addiction transfer in animals and boy, oh boy, can we demonstrate it in people. Mm. And all you have to do is go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and see the, you know, the rock stars and the brownies in the back. Okay. And they basically, you know, traded in a socially unacceptable addiction for a socially acceptable addiction. And, you know, for the most part, we have gotten away with that. I mean, why is there a Starbucks on every street corner? And by the way, if you take my Starbucks away from me, I will kill you. All right. I mean, that's my addiction of choice. And, you know, so far to this day, it's still, you know, non-toxic and socially acceptable and I'm sticking with it. But I recognize it. I know it. The point is there are a lot of people out there who say, oh, I have a horrible sweet tooth. That's sugar addiction till proven otherwise. And if you take the sugar away, then they start drinking. And all you have to do is talk to anybody who's had bariatric surgery mm-hmm. Okay, and find out, oh, now they're alcoholics afterwards, like Carney Wilson as an example. Okay, anybody know that story? Point is, we, uh, Nicole demonstrated this in animals, and then it was up to us to demonstrate it in humans. Now, like Nicole said, in humans, we were looking for tolerance, that is more and more for less and less, and withdrawal, that is, the abstinence syndrome and the symptoms that go along with it. 
And sugar is a little harder for the abstinence syndrome. I admit that. It's not like heroin. You know, you don't go out and steal a car because somebody took your cupcake away. You know, it's not quite that bad. But it's close. It's close. I mean, and the animals, they they would steal the car because sugar is actually uh, pref- preferred over cocaine by rats. Think about that. Um, the point is, um, when they changed the DSM criteria from withdrawal to dependence, so you could have tolerance and withdrawal, or you could have tolerance and dependence, then all of the uh, uh, criteria lined up. And it's very clear that sugar is addictive under tolerance and dependence. I learned about it the hard way, okay, personally and also professionally at the same time. My good friend and colleague and diabetes nurse educator, Colette O'Brien, is in the audience. And Colette will tell you that every day I had to have a cookie at 4 p.m. And this was a problem. And I'm not saying it wasn't. It was. But, you know, I would basically hit the skids at 4 p.m. every single day. And I had to go across the street to Palio and get a a cookie because, you know, I just felt like my energy was gone at that point. At the same time, I was running a study of kids where we, uh, obese kids with metabolic syndrome, that we took the sugar out of their diet and replaced it with extra starch. So it was isocaloric fructose restriction. We took the sugar out and we put the starch in. And what we found was that every aspect of their metabolic health got better. Their blood pressure went down, their glucose went down, their insulin went down, uh, their lactate, they had a lactate level, they shouldn't have a lactate level, they did, and that went down. Um, Every aspect of their metabolic health improved, and their pancreas started making insulin properly. We actually reversed their metabolic syndrome without changing calories and without changing weight, just by getting rid of this fructose molecule. The thing was... We catered their meals for 10 days to do this. We chose the food to be sugar-free, high starch, but sugar-free, okay? So it's not like the food was good food. It was crappy food. It was Safeway food, okay? You can buy it at Safeway. We didn't make up the food. It was, you know, food, you know, you can, you can, you know, that you can buy at Safeway today, but it was no added sugar food. And the thing was that the parents would come back at the 10-day mark when we restudied them. And they would tell me, you know, for the first five days, I thought I was going to lose my mind with this kid because they were so friggin' obnoxious. And then it was like the veil lifted and these kids started acting appropriately. And they stopped being irritable and they were able to concentrate, and they were able to do their schoolwork, and the teachers noticed, and they said, do, is this the same kid? And the kids would say, this is the first time my head hasn't been in the clouds. And it took five days to get over it. So at the same time, they're telling me this. I'm saying, maybe I should drop the chocolate chip cookie. And so I did, and I thought I was going to lose my mind for about a week. and then. I haven't looked back. So I lived it myself and I learned it from my patients and I learned it from Nicole. So it's there. It's there. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting now when we kind of take a look at moving forward, you know, one of the questions that I often get asked is like, okay, food addiction and sugar addiction is real. How are we going to diagnose it? And I think when we look at now what the DSM is doing with pretty much most of the psychiatric conditions that are out there, they're moving toward a spectrum model. So now, for instance, if you have a problem with alcohol, you could be diagnosed as having mild substance use disorder, moderate, or up to severe, depending on how many criteria you have. And so this, I think, has really opened the door for helping a lot of people who maybe are at risk for, you know, maybe they're not a full-blown alcoholic yet, but they're maybe exhibiting some characteristics that suggest that they're headed that way if they don't get help. It's a good strategy. And I think when it comes to 
food and sugar for sure, it's an amazing strategy because we're all at risk. People will often ask me, well, you know, who are the people who we have to be concerned about? Is it kids? Is it, you know, people of a certain age that are maybe at more risk? We're all at risk for developing addiction to sugar because of the pervasiveness of it in our food supply. I mean, if you were to have, you know, a little bit of hidden cocaine in um, your salad dressing, and then you had a little bit of cocaine in the coffee that you were getting at the store that you didn't realize had cocaine in it, and then you had it in your, your beef teriyaki dressing or a sauce that you're putting on your chicken or whatever, again, you're eventually going to get addicted to cocaine because it's just being injected into your diet and you don't even know it. And the same thing is happening with sugar. And I think that's one of the things that we're facing right now is how do we cope with this pervasiveness and how do we cope with the hidden sugars and how do we hold the food companies accountable for these hidden sugars? So you can think you're avoiding it. So you can avoid the candy cakes, ice cream. Ha ha. You think you're avoiding it. That's only 49% of the sugar in, in the diet. Okay. The rest of it is all the stuff you didn't know had it. Okay, 73% of the items in the American grocery store are spiked with added sugar on purpose by the food industry for their purposes, not for yours. They will tell you, oh, it's there for preservative. Oh, it's there as a humectant. Oh, it's there to hold on to water. It's hygroscopic. Oh, it's there for, uh, you know, the browning reaction because it gives flavor, blah, 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 blah. There's a whole bunch of reasons why the food industry uses it. The main reason they use it is because it comes, brings you back. Mm -hmm. That's the reason. Okay, it want, makes you want more because it's addictive and they know it and it's cheap. All right. That's that's what did this. And they learned this basically when we went low fat. So when we went low fat back in 1977, because the original dietary guidelines for Americans from 1977, the McGovern Commission said, eat less fat. Well, when you take the fat out of the food, it tastes like cardboard. Or dishwater, you know? I mean, ask any kid how they feel about whole milk versus skim milk. Okay? They took the, the fat out of the milk and the stuff tasted like dishwater. Well, you know, the dietitians at school said, well, we can't have that. We can't have them, you know, wasting their milk. So what they do, they added the chocolate and the strawberry. All right? So they took something actually that was good for them, the fat, because dairy fat is actually cardioprotective. People think, oh, saturated fat, bad. There are two saturated fats. There's red meat saturated fat and there's dairy saturated fat. They are not the same. Okay, Red meat saturated fat is even chain fatty acids that are cardiovascularly neutral, not good, not bad. And dairy saturated fat is odd chain fatty acids metabolized completely differently in the mitochondria, actually help form mitochondria. And they have a phospholipid signature that is actually associated with cardioprotection. So we took the good thing out of the milk and put the bad thing in. You want to know why we got a problem? This is why we got a problem with kids, all right? And we have to fix the food. I'm happy to say I am the chief, med uh, chief science officer and also the co-founder of a nonprofit here in the Bay Area, some of you may have heard of, called Eat Real. And Eat Real's mission is to get real food into K-12 all over the country. And we are growing like leaps and bounds. Uh, five years ago, we had 50,000 students, and now we have 5 million. Okay, we are in many, like seven states. The, fir the first year we operated, we got 100,000 pounds of sugar out of one school, one district school. Last year, we got a million pounds of sugar out of the same school district. Okay, we and, and you can find it online, eatreal.org. Um, you know, our I mean, think about it. Think this is this is a quiz, quiz, quiz for you. Okay, what is America's largest fast food franchise? Our nation's public schools. Because mm -hmm. if you add up the immediate the, the sites. Okay, it is more than McDonald's and Wendy's and Burger King and Subway and Chick-fil-A and Jack in the Box put together times two. Okay, that's the largest fast food franchise in America. And our kids are suffering for it. And the problem is that the uh, 
uh, food preparation machinery's all been taken out of the schools in place of, you know, being able to, you know, shuttle in Aramark and Cisco and Guggenheim and McDonald's and Pizza Hut. And, um, you know, they fired all the blue haired ladies, you know, with the hairnets. Remember them? OK. And so now the uh, schools are held hostage, you know, because like, how are they going to get food into the schools? Well, we're doing that. We we have developed a business model that can be adopted by any school district. So we can do that, you know, at scale in school and basically turn sugar addiction around at least for eight hours a day. Then the question is, what happens when they come home, especially if the parents are addicted? And this is the biggest problem is how do you fix the parents? We figured out how to fix the kids. How do you fix the parents? And so this is where, you know, I think Nicole is sort of the world's expert. How do you fix sugar addiction at the individual level? And then we'll talk about how we fix it at the societal level. Yeah. I, you know, I'm glad that I was so happy to hear about your involvement with Eat Real. I'm a, I have little kids at home. My little daughter's eight. So I can see this as a parent happening. And it's scary. These kids are growing up where sugar has been so normalized and so built into their daily routine that it's just amazingly alarming to me. So I'll hear stories from my daughter all the time about how, you know, oh, she was asked to go up to deliver an envelope to the principal's office to deliver the mail. And, you know, as a reward for just handing an envelope to somebody, the secretary gave her a lollipop. And so, you know, I think that we are coming at this with our children from the perspective that because maybe they're not overweight, maybe they're active and they're running around and we want to show them that we love them, that we've adopted this idea that, you know, if you give kids sweets, then that's a sweet treat. Well, the problem is that maybe, you know, a hundred years ago that might've worked when sugar was relatively rarer and, you know, it was a sweet treat if you had it once in a while. But now if you give your kids sweets, it's like you're telling them you don't love them because you're harming them. You're harming their health. But the message has not, for some reason, gotten through into the school systems yet. And this is not something that is just happening in the private or the public schools. It's happening in private schools, too. It shows no socioeconomic boundaries. Even very, very wealthy private schools are still having this same issue. Exactly right. Just remember... Every grandma's a pusher. Yes. <laughs> okay. That's the way it has to be looked at. All right. Fix the grandmas. Yeah. So let's talk for a few minutes about what can we do about it? And I, I think this was one of the reasons why I wanted to write my new book, Sugar List, to go through the research, to go through you know what's happening in our brain and help people to understand that this is truly an addictive substance. So that they can hopefully, I mean, you know, I grew up in the 80s and it was burned in my brain. I don't know if anyone remembers that advertisement of the guy with the frying egg when he cracked the egg in the frying pan. And they said, this is your brain and this is your drugs. brain on drugs. Any questions? Yep. That was so powerful to me. And it stuck with me that I was petrified to ever think about trying drugs because I just didn't want my brain to fry like an egg. And so... I think we we need to hopefully be able to do that with sugar to get the message so powerful and really package it in a way that people are going to say, wow, this stuff is addictive. It's causing my dopamine system to be completely dysregulated, to mess up my ability to have pleasure in other more positive things like relationships, exercise. And so I want to really take this seriously. And I want to understand, you know, how I can change my diet and how I can change my relationship with food, because that's what it really boils down to. As Rob said, we'll talk in a minute about what can we do societally, but individually, we have to change our relationship with food. We have to realize that just because something's in the grocery store doesn't mean it's good for you. There's bleach in the grocery store too, and toilet bowl cleaner, but that doesn't mean it's good for us to consume. I heard it cures COVID. <laughs> so that's really where we have to go is to understand, you know, how can we change that relationship with food? How can we get away from using sugar to 
help us self-soothe. Many, many people, I would say sugar is probably the most abused drug in the world because people use it to self-medicate. People use it to numb their feelings, to make them feel better if they've had a bad day at work. They use it to reward themselves if they've had a good day at work. And so I think we need to really start to reflect on our use of sugar, why we're using it, and really reevaluate what role we want it to play in our life. Knowing the damage it can cause to our physical health and our mental health, we need to come up with a better treatment for our emotions than using food to soothe them. To that point, uh, you know, Nicole just said, we use it to celebrate and we also use it to douse our fear, uh, our, uh, our miseries. Mm-hmm. Okay. We use it for both. Right. Which means that something's wrong if you're doing it for both. Right. Um, a group uh, 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 neuroscientists at Sapien Labs did a study, 227,000 people demonstrating that ultra processed foods predict depression. Ultra pro- the consumption of ultra processed foods predict depression. And people say, ah, oh, well, you know, that's, you know, uh, socioeconomic. No, that was adjusted for, oh, you know, exercise will fix that. No, that was adjusted for, um, you know, it's racially mediated. No, that was adjusted. For, everything was adjusted for. And ultra processed foods still popped out as the primary driver of depression. And so this is actually changing the way people now view ultra processed foods, not just as a toxicant systemically, but in fact, as a um, brain uh, toxicant as well for mental health. I also want to point out um, online, uh, you know, as a resource for your kids and for, you know, the naysayers in your family. Okay. When you get together at Thanksgiving, um, Nicole put out a TED. Uh, Ed talk. Uh, It's five minutes long on uh, what sugar does to your brain. And I put out a Ted Ed talk at the same time called Sugar Hiding in Plain Sight. Okay. As to how how you can actually identify the foods that have it. And by the way, there are 262 names for sugar. And the food industry uses them all on purpose. And the reason they use them all is because you can put a different kind of sugar as number five, number six, number seven, number eight, number nine. When you add them up, it's number one. And they don't have to declare it. Notice on the side of the package, it says total sugars or it says added sugars now. It didn't used to. Okay. But next to it, there's supposed to be a number, right? A percent, a percent daily value, percent DV. And there's a percentage, there's a a, a, a reference range for every single thing on that nutrition facts label, except sugar. Why is that? Why is there no percent DV for sugar? And that's because there is no purpose to it. There is no DV because no one needs it. And I thought this was very interesting. In 2011, I went to a meeting uh, it was the Culinary Institute of America. It was called Healthy Flavors, Healthy Kids. And we were going to talk about how we were going to fix school food. I, I, I ended up uh, retitling the, the meeting, Little Horror of Salad Bars. That's, that's when it was decided that that's how, you know, we should fix, you know, school food was basically putting a salad bar in every school. You know, that makes perfect sense, right? You know, they didn't even have sneeze guards, you know, I mean, sure, everyone's going to, you know, eat from this communal salad bar. I mean, give me a friggin' break. But nonetheless, that's what they decided. And one of the panelists at that meeting was a guy by the name of Sam Cass. Anybody have heard of Sam Cass? So Sam Cass was a shell, Michelle Obama's personal chef who came with her and her husband to the White House, and, she, and he became the point person for her Let's Move campaign. Everybody remember that, okay? And it started out against the food industry, and her very first uh, statement in this, you know, uh, sleeveless pink dress it was all over YouTube, and she called the food industry out and said, this is your fault, this happened on your watch, and we have to fix the food in order to fix our kids. She never said it again. Yeah. Her own administration actually muzzled her, okay? And then, actually, Let's Move became about moving instead of about the food. You know, but anyway, Sam Cass was the point person on Let's Move. And he was there at this meeting, and I was there too. And I asked him, okay, why is there no percent DV for sugar on the food label? And he said to me, in front of all these people, 
Why would you need a percent DV for something that's not a nutrient? And I thought to myself, right, exactly. Why would you? But that's the whole point, isn't it? It's not a nutrient. So here's my question to you. Can you name a substance that is got calories, that is not necessary for life, that in fact causes cellular, organ, and human damage and death? And we love it anyway, and it's addictive. Alcohol. Okay? Alcohol is a substance that has calories, seven calories per gram. There's no biochemical reaction in the body that requires it. When consumed, it causes, and not even in excess, even in normal amount, you know, small amounts, causes cellular human damage and ultimately death if you drink enough of it. And we love it and it's addictive. Okay? And 20% of America are either binge drinkers or chronic alcoholics. Okay? No dietitian on the planet would say that alcohol was food because it had calories. So why would they say that sugar was a food when it all it has is calories and does the exact same things? No biochemical reaction that requires it when consumed in excess causes cell, hum, um, organ, and human damage and death, and we love it anyway, and it's addictive. And the reason is because sugar and alcohol metabolize exactly the same way in the liver and in the brain. So this is not a shocker. This is not rocket science. This actually makes perfect sense. Sugar is the alcohol of the child. And that's why grandma is a pusher. You know, it's interesting, Rob, that you introduced this idea, and I've been thinking about this a lot over the past couple of years. When I first started doing this work, my focus was so much on this word addiction. How do we show if it's addictive or not? How do we define addiction? And over the past couple of years, I I truly believe we've done enough to show it's addictive. If people don't believe it at this point, they're never going to believe it. The new conversation that I've been having is what is a food? And I think there's the problem because we have this umbrella term of food that for the longest time... If I said, oh, come on over to my house, we're going to have some food, you would have a general sense of, all right, she's probably going to serve us some stuff to eat. But now you have no idea what I'm going to put out. I could be putting out potato chips. I could be putting out, you know, prime rib. I mean, it, it could be anything. And I think this is where we are in terms of moving forward to avoid getting pushback like, oh, well, it has calories in it, so it must be a food. Ultra-processed food is engineered food. It's not even food in my opinion. Not food. It's not. Not food. So we need to erase that term from our discussion when we're talking about these things, because I think when we call it a food, and this is of my own admissions too, we're supporting the idea that it's a food in the sense of what we've traditionally known food to be, which is nourishing and good for us. This stuff is not in the same category. And I think that we need to come up with a way to have that be a more mainstream part of the conversation. And again, the addiction piece, I think now most of the medical professionals I know, most of the scientists, they'll at least acknowledge like, yeah, there's an addictive component to sugar. I will tell you that Nicole has been a warrior on this issue. In 2012, an article came out in Nature Neuroscience from this group in the UK, basically saying the case against food addiction and made this, you know, circuitous argument about it, survival and, you know, you need food and blah, blah, blah. And um, uh, Nicole sent a letter to the editor afterwards that basically called it out and said, you know, uh, 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 how did you... But the, the 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 title was the best. It was um, um, yeah, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Are you throwing the baby out with the bathwater after a brief rinse? And then they came back and said, "Is there even a baby in the bathwater?" Right. It was I mean, real. <laughs> it was really severe. I got to tell you. And the fact of the matter is that a lot of the people in the ivory tower still, you know, 
cling to this notion that sugar is safe. It is a food because it, it has calories and sugar can be part of a balanced diet. And basically, I think they're all taking money is what I think is going on. Well, you know, the thing I always will go back to is if something's addictive, the whole idea that we'll just have it in moderation doesn't hold up as well That's because right. you can't expect somebody who is addicted to heroin to just have a little bit of heroin like that. If that worked, that would actually be wonderful for many people, but it doesn't work. That's not how addictions work. That's not how powerful drugs work. That's not how the brain works. And so when we're talking about, you know, expecting people to moderate and have just a little bit of a highly addictive substance, that's an awful big ask. So the big question is, you know, well, what are you going to do about it, right? All right. So everybody says, how about diet sweeteners? And I know you're going to all ask about diet sweeteners. So I'm going to get it off the table right now. All right. The toxicity of one Coca-Cola equals the toxicity of two diet Coca-Colas. Got it? Now, you say, wait a second, no calories, no fructose. How can that be? And the reason is because it has nothing to do with the calories or the fructose in that case. Diet sweeteners, number one, still generate an insulin response because sweet generates an insulin response. And the dopamine response. And the dopamine response. And that's been shown 50 ways from Sunday, including neuroimaging and what have you. And in addition, diet sweeteners alter the microbiome and lead to this thing called leaky gut. And that leads to systemic inflammation, which drives chronic metabolic disease by itself. So that's not the answer. The way I think of diet sweeteners is like methadone. If you're a heroin addict, the reason we need to do something about it is because when you're in your withdrawal state, you're going to steal a car, okay? When you're in your high state, you're not dangerous to anybody. You're only dangerous in the withdrawal state. So what do we do? We paper over the withdrawal state by giving this oral opioid called methadone. You know, now we have others, you know, to, to take their place. But ultimately, that's the goal is to basically even out the highs and the lows, and the goal of methadone treatment is to wean the amount slowly but surely over the course of eight weeks till you're off it. That's what's supposed to happen, but that's not what happens. What happens is that they get, replace it and it stays there and the people don't, you know, and the, the patients don't even come back to the addiction clinic, okay? And of course, the uh, addiction uh, treatment uh, staff they don't want to put you at risk, so they don't want to take your methadone away. So it ends up just basically being a swap, methadone for heroin, and society doesn't care because, you know, you're not stealing cars. If that's what you're doing with diet sweeteners and you're papering over your sugar addiction with diet sweeteners, you are truly not helping yourself. Yeah, it's just a Band-Aid. It's a Band-Aid. Band it's a Band-Aid. Ultimately, we need to de-sweeten de our lives. And the only Absolutely. way to do that is to de-sweeten the food. And the only way to do that is to get the food industry on board, which is what I've been trying to do now for the past, oh, decade or so. Well, you know, to be honest with you, we've done actually a pretty good job. Things are happening. Okay. We need to questions. move on to questions. Any questions on this side of the room? Yes. Uh, good evening, and thank you very much for this for this fantastic and enlightening presentation. Um, so uh, over and over again, we hear, eat your fruits and vegetables, it's healthy. You've heard this question, obviously, numerous times. So it does seem to be that there's a dichotomy between the former and the latter. And so like blueberries, antioxidants, good fiber, strawberries, etc., peaches, plums, beets. What's the uh, what's the what's the lowdown on natural fructose? Well, let me just say my piece, and then I'm going to hand this to Rob because this is definitely his department. I don't think people are getting obese from eating too many blueberries. They're getting obese from eating too many candy bars, too many cakes and cookies, right? So the fructose in fruit. It's in a concentration that is certainly much less than the fructose that you're going to see in high fructose corn syrup, which we don't even know how much fructose is in high fructose corn syrup. So my short answer to that question is 
if the fruit is part of your diet, I don't think the fructose in the fruit is what's causing the problem. The fructose in all of the other processed foods that's in all of those added sugars is what's causing the problem. And I would argue that it's not the fructose in the fruit that's the pro- it, it, that's a problem. It, it's the same molecule, but the fruit comes with fiber. Right. Now, why is fiber important? Because fiber blocks absorption of sugar at the level of the intestine keeps it in the intestine, moves it further down the intestine so that the microbiome, the bacteria in the intestine, will chew it up. So even though it passed your lips, even though it registered as calories consumed, you actually didn't get it. Your bacteria did. Okay? When people are pregnant, we always say, oh, you're eating for two. Well, I hate, hate to tell you, but you're always eating for 100 trillion. Okay? And the question is, how much did you get versus how much did they get? And the more fiber that you consume, the more they got, which is good for you because you're actually feeding your gut. And your gut makes all sorts of fun things like short-chain fatty acids, which are anti-inflammatory and actually protect that intestinal lining and prevent that chronic inflammation. So the fiber is the reason to eat the fruit, not the fructose. Uh, thank you and terrific presentation. I learned a ton. Um, that 11 years ago, uh, I made a life change and gave up alcohol. Um, pretty much my only demon now is coffee. And late night before I late night before I go to bed, there is no late nights anymore. But uh, before I go to bed, I have to have um, cake or donut or even if there's nothing there, it's cereal or Ritz crackers or I have to. And I can't sleep. If I try to sleep, I can't. What are some alternatives to cake and donuts and Ritz crackers and cereal that might allow me to? Well, you know, I would say that it's about a habit that you're trying to change. It's a, you're, the craving isn't necessarily for whatever nutrition could possibly come from those types of foods. It's because you've developed this habit that you have these things every night. And so it becomes about changing the habit. Go do something else, play a video game for 30 minutes before you go to bed or read a book or, you know, but it doesn't have to be that you replace it with something that's a consumatory habit. I think that the best bet in those types of situations is that you replace it with a completely different behavior because if you just, you know, eat something else, it's easier to gravitate back toward, you know, eating those things that you're going to be craving. So that's what I would suggest. Um, Dr. Vina, I've heard that if, and I don't know if you've tried this, a little protein in the evening. Have you tried substituting a protein food? Yeah. I, I would actually suggest a piece of cheese. There you go. Yeah. Okay. And the reason is number one, fat. Number two, protein. Number three, there are receptors in the intestine for what are known as casomorphins. And so that may give you a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, shall we say cover, you know, while this is changing over. It's hard to get good nutrition advice. And I just wanted to know what your opinion is on why medical students are not exposed to nutrition. <laughs> I, I can answer that in two words, big pharma. So big pharma underwrites 80% of medical education. They don't want doctors to know nutrition. And I know because I went to medical school and I know why they didn't teach it. The reason I do this is because I majored in nutritional biochemistry at MIT undergrad. And then I went to medical school and they told me that everything I learned was a crock of you know what. That's not how we take care of patients, blah, 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 blah. The fact of the matter is doctors don't learn nutrition and they don't want to because they learn the two P's, prescriptions and procedures. They don't learn the third P, prevention. Or the fourth P, public health. The point is that, you know, the goal of medical school is to train prescribers and not preventers. Um, there's another, there's two, two schools of thought. One is low carb, you know, Atkins, keto for glucose management. There's another one which is low fat, you know, because of fatty liver and insulin resistance. It's pretty clear where you stand on sugar. I'm curious about your take on the low fat pathway to managing bl blood glucose. Okay. Um, I, I take it you're asking me that one. Okay. Uh, the short answer is they both work if you're healthy. Now, if you're not healthy, the low-fat diet is the si single worst thing you can do. So 
You said low-fat actually helps fatty liver disease. No, it doesn't. Low-fat actually makes fatty liver disease worse, not better. If you're insulin resistant, it would actually make things worse. And the reason is because if you're low-fat, you're high-carb. And so you're going to make that de novo lipogenesis, and de novo lipogenesis occurs in the liver. Now, the fat you consume ends up contributing to a higher LDL, but LDL does not, is not what gets caught in the liver. What gets caught in the liver is triglyceride, and the triglyceride is basically coming from de novo lipogenesis, and we've actually proven that 50 ways from Sunday. So that is not the case. Now, if you are, have familial hypercholesterolemia, which is one in 500, which by the way, I happen to have, I'm heterozygote for it. Um, and you know, everyone in my family has you know, heart disease at a very early age. Okay, you, you probably do need a low fat diet and you probably also need a statin. But if you don't have familiar hypercholesterolemia, then a low carb diet, which is usually a real food diet, is actually much smarter. And I would say, in fact, it's not the low-carb diet. What you need is really a high-fiber diet. So you mentioned in your list of foods that have sucrose or are sucrose, honey, and maple syrup. I've mostly cut out sugar for the last maybe decade, but I do still have honey and a little bit of maple syrup. What are your thoughts on that? Is that better than having table sugar, or is that something that if I'm looking to cut this out, I should take out too? You know, I think it's, you know, I get this question quite often about, you know, which sugar's better. If we could like rank order, you know, everybody wants the list of like the better sugars and the worst sugars. I don't necessarily know that there is such a way to categorize things. I think there's aspects of things like honey, it's antifungal, antimicrobial that are positive in some ways, but it's still a sugar. And so I think it's about what your goals are. If you're eating honey once in a while or drizzling it in your tea once in a while and you're in control, to me, I think then enjoy yourself your honey. But when people come to me and say, oh, if honey's better, then I'll just put honey in everything, <laughs> then that's where it becomes a problem. So I think it's really more about how much of it you're consuming and if you feel like you're in control. And if that's the case, then it sounds like those are good choices. I'll phrase it slightly differently. I am for dessert. For dessert. I am not for dessert for breakfast, lunch, snacks, and dinner. So if you are having honey as your dessert or in association with your dessert, and that's the only place in your diet that the sugar is uh, obvious or even not obvious, hey, have at it. Enjoy it. Okay. You know, if you like baklava, you know, they soak it in honey. If, that, if that's your dessert, and that's the only dessert you're having today, you know, you know, God bless you. But just make sure your coffee wasn't a dessert. Yeah. Often your coffee yeah. is make a dessert. Make sure your coffee wasn't dessert. Make sure your breakfast wasn't dessert. Okay. Just remember, the National School Breakfast Program breakfast in America is a bowl of Fruit Loops and a glass of orange juice. That's 41 grams of sugar. Okay. The American Heart Association says for children upper limit of 12 grams for the whole day. That's 41 grams, and it's just breakfast. That's the problem. Great. Uh, Dr. Lustig, I read your um, metabolic book, and you make some reference in regards to your not being a real big fan of supplements. And if I'm my memory is correctly, I think you're locked into uh, vitamin D, amino acid in some capacity, and vitamin C. I was wondering, are omega omega threes, omega three, but are those supplements to somewhat neutralize uh, hidden sugar in your diet? No, or, not uh, no. It will not, not. None of those will actually mitigate the problem of sugar. That's that. That's not the case. The, I just think based on how they work and what's deficient in our ultra-processed food diet, that those are things that we can supplement where we can actually demonstrate efficacy. By the way, I would add something to that now, and that is B vitamins. We are actually B vitamin deficient nowadays, and it's been shown that omega-3s plus B vitamins can actually reverse Alzheimer's. Thank you. Um, and I want to say thank you for acknowledging the work of a female colleague. I feel that is so rarely seen in, uh, what, in so many kidding? other panels. I mean, she, she, she invented the field. No, I, 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 I think no, I, I love it. I applaud that. Too. It is so rare to see. 
So my question is, um, I'm about halfway through your book. Um, I haven't read your book yet. What's the killer bill? If you could work with a legislator to write a bill that would start to reverse this at a societal level, what would that bill be? Oh boy, we could do a whole program on that. Um, I think, well, certainly it's going to probably mirror what happened with tobacco. We're going to start off with having some warning labels. I think we need to move beyond just, you know, this is bad for your health as a warning label, because I think, you know, we see that now, if you look at the nutrition facts label, there is a requirement for the food companies to now start putting a DV for added sugar. And so when you look at products now, you're going to see, yeah, some of these products are 56% of your daily recommended value of added sugar. Not a good idea to eat it. So I think having a degree of, you know, how highly processed these foods are so that people can have some more transparency. I think that's certainly one of the places to start. And then I think we need to work to start unnormalizing it. Our kids, I mean, my eight-year-old does not know what the world looks like without added sugar everywhere we go and it being offered to her all the time. And to try to have her understand why she needs to resist it and to say, no, thank you. It's a foreign concept to these children. So I think that's where I would start. I would start in a different place. I would get rid of all food subsidies. And the only way to do that is fix the farm bill. The reason is because it doesn't matter what you tell people. What you have to do is you have to make it worthwhile for the food industry to change. Right now, they make money on subsidized products, on subsidized crops, corn, wheat, soy, sugar, all of which are bad for us. Now, what if they didn't subsidize those things? Okay, then they wouldn't be able to make so much money off those things. And they'd have to actually consider selling other stuff instead, like broccoli. (laughs) Point is that as long as food subsidies exist, they distort the market. Okay, and as long as the market is distorted, you can only expect so much out of the public. Mm. And we've we saw we we learned that with tobacco and alcohol. Well, we've come to the end of the program. So our thanks today to Dr. Lustig and Dr. Avina. We also thank our audience here as well as those listening online. This meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating the 120th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.